so my business whether it's something for the industrial portfolio development land or just something to quick flip on mls i'm looking for trouble and if there ain't trouble i don't want it when things got so competitive every youtube channel told you how to do real estate deals every guy on the corner was given a seminar mm -hmm. the foreclosure auction went from having 30 people to 300. Mm -hmm. things radically changed and I'm not the kind of guy that's willing to take a small margin because it's too risky. I have a risk of messing up, losing money. There's all these things that can go wrong. And early on in the career, I started to find during an annual review that two or three of my deals were the messiest and the hardest, but I just, they stood out to me in margin. Mm -hmm. And I realized one of them had multiple owners. One of them had judgments and liens that I had to deal with. And they took half a year to fix, like all the summer at least. All right, you guys, welcome back to the Light It Up podcast. If you're new to this channel and you want to know everything about making money in real estate, selling sales skills, building your business or investing, then subscribe below. Tap the bell for notifications so you can be the first to know what makes our great guests so successful. Let's talk about adding leverage. So we've been getting a lot of calls of people asking us how we've hired virtual assistants to scale and leverage our business. So we've opened up our playbook to all of you. If you're looking to add leverage in your business, whether it's administrative support, ISA outbound callers, go to adleverage.com and they'll be there to help you staffing your team. All right, today's guest, Logan Fulmer. Logan, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, we're excited to, uh, to get to know a little bit more about you, your business, and uh, what you guys are working on in 2024. Uh, but before we do that, we'll, we'll hit you with the lightning round first. I'll hit you first. Um, what's the worst job you've ever had? Oh my gosh. The worst job I ever had was working at an automotive repair shop after I got out of rehab when I was like 25 years old for $13 an hour sweeping floors and cleaning stuff so I could have food money. Holy shit. Wow. <laughs> was bad. How did you quit? There's a lot job. to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> How did well, you what was the question? How did you quit? Like what led you to quit? The reason I quit was because a buddy of mine was the guy who was running the place, a manager, and I had another opportunity where I was like, okay, I finally got my shit together where I can like stay sober. Yeah. Okay, now I'm going to go get a real job. Stepping, got it. Damn. I like it. <laughs> All right. What's the first music you've ever purchased? Oh, dude, that was like high school. That was like Pearl Jam. Yep. That was back on CDs. Well, it's uh, I was reading your bio like a couple minutes ago, and, and are you forty two? Yeah, forty two. So I'm forty. So I'm same same I'm, music era. I'm grooving yeah. there. Yeah, that's why he picked it. Smashing the, Pumpkins, Smashing Pearl Pumpkins, Jam. Nirvana, yeah. Green Day. Oh yeah. Oh stuff, yeah. Nineteen ninety four. All right. What's something you did as a child that your parents still retell the story about? I feel like my entire childhood. Gosh. Oh, I showed up to middle school one day with a mohawk. <laughs> Just buzzed it, me left the top. Mm. Without, without obviously your parents knowing this, you just did it. Yeah, my mom. I mean, my mom found out. She was like, "What do you think you're doing?" But at that point, <laughs> it's there. <laughs> That's good. The way she found out is my siblings came home because I had a brother that was one year younger, yeah. and he came home before I did and told my mom, "Logan showed up in the gym at lunch with a mohawk." <laughs> She's like, what? 
Oh, man. What were the three biggest turning points in your life? So you're probably guessing this could matter. Earlier when I talked about my worst job was the first job out of rehab, mm -hmm. getting clean and sober was the biggest point. Getting laid off for my job after I got clean and sober, saved money, started buying real estate. I got laid off for my job. That was a, a huge inflection point. And then after that, having kids, mm -hmm. those three. Cool. Love that. All right, last question. If you could spend the whole day with someone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, God. I don't even know. Kara's famous question. You know who I admire the most is, is probably some of the, the big investors, you know, the Mungers, the Buffets. Mm. Those are very pragmatic men that didn't seem to do anything special and approach things in a very reasonable way, but happened to do it better than anybody almost in our generation. Mm -hmm. And it'd be really interesting to just understand how they understand. Yeah. yeah. How they think about things. That's good. All right. Good well, answer. Let's go into it then. So if someone met you or people who don't know you on this, uh, the audience, can you just share a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah. In just a couple minutes, my name is Logan Fulmer, 42 years old, born and raised in Texas, lived all across the state, went and did a bunch of random jobs after I got out of college and found myself in the oil field, finally making money after I'd gotten sober and cleaned up and um, decided to take a plunge investing into real estate. You know, I bought a couple dozen vacant lots with all the money I'd been saving, little dollars at a time. And um, one of them started, they started to pop. I started getting calls and I was getting offers for one to 200,000. I was buying them for five to 10 grand. Mm, just three or four later, years later, while I was still working in the oil field. And it changed my life. It told me that the portfolio was worth a bunch of money now. Mm -hmm. And shortly thereafter, I got laid off. And at that point, I said, this is, God is telling me to do this. Don't go back built a real estate business, um, started out doing uh, pre-foreclosures. Then I got into some messy title stuff and the curative title work, you know, distressed property has really been the backbone of my business, but my business has taken so many different shapes in the last 10 years now. Um, I've got a mortgage note portfolio. I've got an industrial portfolio. Um, I do have some development land, you know, buy the property, get the development agreement, get the preliminary plat and then sell it to a builder. Got a really interesting place. There are 20 people in my office. I got an attorney, a CPA, a private investigator, um, and one genealogist. And we just do deals, man. I look for stuff that has major problems, and I'm getting them for 20 to 30 cents on the dollar. And once I'm done spending with legal bills and taxes and maybe development work or whatever, I'm never in it for more than 30 to 50 cents on the dollar. And at that point, I look around, have a couple partners in the office and say, what do we do? We gonna rent it? We can sell it? Do we entitle it? What do we do? Yeah, cool. So, so beyond beyond the work life, I'm a father of four. I'm married, um, one wife. Don't have, not not been through multiples. <laughs> Hopefully, it stays <laughs> like that. Um, my wife is a second generation immigrant. She's here from Panama. That's where her mom brought them over here. Nice. Beautiful kids. The youngest one is three years old. The oldest one is uh, thirteen. Well, wow. yeah. I run a lot. My hobbies are work, family, and running. That's it. I love it, man. That's awesome. Oh, rental portfolio. I just ran the math on this the other day. My industrial portfolio, I've actually not sat down. We've been buying. We've been getting tenants in there. It's been a hasty um, pace the last couple of years. I just sat down and looked at it. We're doing 70000 a month in gross revenue. 20000 of that is debt service. It's about nice. 50, 55 grand a month in uh, net income on the rental portfolio. So I, it's actually formidable i knew i had a lot but I'm like, <laughs> dude that's, that's awesome 
So correct me if I'm wrong, would you say your secret power or your superpower is really being able to find the deals? That's the sauce, man. That's the backbone. Yeah. Can you tell us how the hell you do that? Because especially today, it's the, really the hard. The genealogist, obviously. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm looking for opportunity through distress. And when things got so competitive, every YouTube channel told you how to do real estate deals. Every guy on the corner was given a seminar. Mm -hmm. The foreclosure auction went from having 30 people to 300. Mm -hmm. Things radically changed. And I'm not the kind of guy that's willing to take a small margin because it's too risky. I have a risk of messing up, losing money. There's all these things that can go wrong. And early on in the career, I started to find during an annual review that two or three of my deals were the messiest and the hardest, but I just, they stood out to me in margin. Mm -hmm. And I realized one of them had multiple owners. One of them had judgments and liens that I had to deal with. And they took half a year to fix, like all the summer at least. But they were incredible margins. Like I bought something for 10, 20 grand and sold it for like 70 or 80. Mm. And the margin is great. So I, I started to head towards that. So my business, whether it's something for the industrial portfolio, development land, or just something to quick flip on MLS, I'm looking for trouble. And if there ain't trouble, I don't want it. Yeah. That's okay. a good way to say it. Yeah. Because what you said is so true because especially during the pandemic, people were trying to find deals, people who were relying on like probate lead sources that dried up because of the courthouses. So they yeah. went into pre-foreclosures, but then that dried up because of the courthouses. And then now you're looking at like just random call call lists. So then you had to try to figure it out from there. So, so but my timeline's a little earlier. So mm. I first started going to foreclosure auction about 2014 or 15 range. And I go to the foreclosure auction, buy something and then put up for sale by owner sign in the yard and it would sell in a week or so. Mm. And that was my channel. They're basically wholetails from the foreclosure auction on MLS. But as folks started showing up there, the pricing went upwards while I started going pre-foreclosure and I'd knock before the sale. Mm. And, and those are these progressions to now, instead of just doing that, then I'd look for the people that have the most problems pre-detrimental event. But this model has pretty much been this way since about 2016, 17. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're always looking for the edge. So right now, with so if you're looking for pre-foreclosure, you'd be looking for like 60-day delinquents, essentially. Well, tax are the mortgage. So in Texas, we're um, non-judicial foreclosure. It's power mm -hmm. of sale in the deed of trust clause okay. is what allows that to happen. But we, I'm looking mostly for tax, tax foreclosures. That's a very good indicator mm -hmm. of a problem property. There are a lot of other ways to search. But what I did find after doing this for years almost every one of these properties does have a delinquent tax problem. It may not be a tax lawsuit yet, mm -hmm. but it's delinquent. So if you start there, then it can look a couple different ways, but you're always looking for delinquent tax. Now you can find them once they have a lawsuit on them, which they're more motivated at that mm -hmm. time. And then lastly, there's a 21 day notice, notice of sale in Texas must be posted not more than 21 days before the sheriff auctions that property off. Mm -hmm. Sure. Those, Got three weeks left. Everybody's in the hot seat, but I try to get there a little earlier. Yeah, yeah. smart. That's super smart. So, and so, what's your system though? You're, you're obviously this is probably public data, right? Mm -hmm. Public data. You're, you're skip tracing yeah. or whatever your source is, and you're just you have a calling team that's reaching out to these people and just trying to put a deal together. Yeah, basically half of the twenty heads in my offices. Our head counts usually about twenty. Usually about half of them are folks that are involved in lead generating one way or the other. Some people are just pure researchers. Some people are phone callers, but that's the bulk of them. 
you know, the two most common ways that I'll go for these kind of leads are we'll pull a delinquent tax list for the county. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's delinquent more than $10,000 on a property that's worth at least 200,000, mm. we'll take a look at that. Another one that I prefer, there's a little bit more motivation, but this takes more time and skill is we'll go to the, the county or the district clerk docket search in that county. And that's basically a list of all the lawsuits online that are active in that county. And you can search by plaintiff or defendant or cause number or whatever. I search by plaintiff name, which would be, let's say, Bear County. Counties don't sue people really ever unless it's for delinquent taxes. That's how the tax lawsuits are styled. Mm -hmm. So the moment that tax lawsuit is filed, it is it shows up as a new lawsuit. And you'll see in the docket search, it'll say original petition filed, original petition accepted by clerk. And then it will say citation issued, meaning an officer of the court went out to that person's house and says, you're being served. You have to respond in 21 days, blah, blah, blah. And then it says citation return. That's when I'm in. Mm. A sheriff just visited or a constable just visited their house and said, you're being sued for delinquent taxes. They got the bubble guts. They're nervous. It's now real. They haven't paid in two years and they thought this day would never happen. It's happened. Yeah. Once that docket search has that notice in it, now it's time for us to try to get a hold of folks. So that's that's a very powerful way for us to do it too. That's sure. smart. That's super smart. And so your team's reaching out. What's that conversation look like? You know, I went through every rendition. So for the first three or four years, I was on the phone, in the field. You know, I learned this model myself. And sure. then it spread to others. But I went through every rendition of the phone call. I'd have a script. I would do the very professional sounding and, you know, Mr. Confident and just every rendition of it. And you know what ended up working best for me? Hey, John, this is Logan Fulmer. I'm over here on North New Braunfels Street here in San Antonio. I was looking through the county records um, and I noticed your, I think your property's got some issues with it. it. It's got some taxes, but there may be some title issues too. Did I get the right John? Am I in the right place? Yeah. And I think I know what I'm talking about, but I don't have to be Mr. Confident. I'm just trying to validate some data that I get the right person mm -hmm. half the time they tell me get lost and I'm not here to create a deal I'm here to find a deal yeah so if they're willing to talk and open we start the conversation and it's discovery it's you know it looks like they're delinquent taxes but you know I'm surprised how something like that start to happen we had a major event in their life and blah 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 oh my gosh well I realize this property is in your father's name is he deceased and I think I noticed you have four or five siblings. Is that right? Mm. Well, we do have five and that's the problem. See, Johnny's living in the house and won't let us, you know, and that's what mm. it unrolls. Yeah. It's very um, unassuming, not aggressive. Sure. Fact-finding mission. Yeah. And I do, this is a very important part for me though. I let people know once they've shared a little bit with me, I say, look, I've got an office of 20 people here and some attorneys in-house. This is what we do professionally. I do projects just like this one might have some interest in this one, but I'm gonna need a little bit more information. So let's talk a little bit further. And if this looks like the right deal for me, you know, I would like to make you an offer today after we get off the phone. Is that okay with you? Hmm. I wanna let them know, hey, I wanna do a deal like this, but I have these things backed up. There are countless deals like this out there. And unless it's gonna work out between us, I'm not gonna press you. I'll go to the next one. I don't want anything to be bad for either of us. So if you think it's good, let's talk. Yeah, I'm not that dude calling hotbox and I'm using the used car sales tactics to make have make them make a decision this moment. Yeah, yeah. 
you're looking for a deal. You're not trying to create a deal. I like that one. That's important. Yeah. So you'll make an offer over the phone without seeing the property, without sending somebody out there, just based off of what you can see on Zillow and, and realtor.com and the other websites. Yeah. I, you know, one of my partners is a CPA and he's just Mr. Detail, Mr. Check every box. And I ain't like that, man. I shoot first, ask questions later. But we used to go out and look at everything, go through all the details. What I started to find is if something's worth 250 and I'm buying it for 20,000 bucks, <laughs> and I'm, good paying, deal. I'm paying 10 in taxes, I don't need to see it. I'm covered on the land. Yeah. You can't mess that up. True. I bought property that had drainage ditches and drainage easements behind them. The house, I thought there was a house and it was actually demolished by the city and then Google image didn't show that picture and there was actually no house. Mm. But when you're buying 20 to 40 cents on the dollar, you've got, you got a lot of room for error. Yeah, I, you know what? We should talk about this at some point today. Mm-hmm. One of the guys in my office had been doing a bunch of commercial wholesaling and that's got tougher in the last year. So we said, you know what? Let me go back to the distressed acquisition model. That's our tried and true deal. So we did that. He started in October. So he's now uh, four months into that. He's purchased 21 properties for a total value of $4 million. Mm. His total spend is 1 million, wow. well, a million, 1.1 million. So he's in at about 25 cents on the dollar right now. Is that all in Texas? Yeah, this is all in Texas. And of those 20 properties, I've not seen any of them. We have only sent a person out to two of them because we were having problems getting a door to work Mm. and we couldn't get a trade to go out there and fix it. It was like, it shouldn't have been a disaster, but it was. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, we sent one of our handyman out there to fix the door, put a lockbox on it. So realtors could get in and out. I don't look at it. So you saw it by accident. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll send a surveyor out to give me a survey. I'll send someone out to take drone photography. Um, And then we'll send a company called home jab. They'll take pictures. Mm. And if the pictures look bad, I'll call a clean out crew, have them go haul the trash out, trim the trees, and then Home Jab goes out and takes another set of pictures. That's it, man. Goes to MLS. How did he find those? How did he find oh the properties? Yeah. They're delin- part of part of those are delinquent taxes. Yeah. And then part of them were docket search. Got it. Yeah. Got it. You, you also mentioned earlier something about buying notes. How did you get into that? Actually, we originated those. Uh, several years ago, we went through this thing of thinking we were gonna do a lot of mobile homes and we toyed around with them start to understand them. And there's several areas in South Texas that are heavy mobile home areas. Mm-hmm. We found that we can buy them really, really cheap, generally put anywhere from zero to $15,000 in them to get them safe and habitable and sell them for about double what we paid. As long as we sell them on a sell a carry note, you can get mm-hmm. a premium on the price. Yep. So one of the guys in my office loves them and he just keeps originating those things. Smart. Okay. So you're not buying them from the third part, like from the marketplace at all. You know, when you get really rich, like you're like older and really rich, you know, you can accept yourself an 8% or 12% return. I'm not there. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've got an growth strategy or aggressive growth strategy and I got to have a big return and you're going to end up usually with about a 35% internal rate of return if you buy one of those mortgage mobile homes and sell it on a note for about double what you paid and take a 10% down. Mm-hmm. You're about a 30 to 35% IRR. Okay. I can afford to have my money locked up in those. Sure. Makes sense. So it, just to get an idea with your knowledge now, if you had to go back in time being like a solo investor, you're doing one, two, three deals a year. How did you break through getting a consistent deal flow? What were the strategy, or what would you recommend today for someone to do that? You know, I built my business different than a lot of folks. A lot of folks start hiring employees. 
I didn't do it that way. I hired one employee as like a secretarial person because I was, I got to the point where I could bring in about a million in net pretty much by myself and with an assistant. Mm -hmm. But outside of that, the only way I made more money was to do bigger deals or work more hours. So I was out of hours and I didn't necessarily want to do bigger deals because these were very reasonable investments, you know, dollars that I could afford, mm -hmm. but their returns were big. I just wanted to do more of those. So I brought on a guy that I trained for about a year. We worked side by side together. And then after that year, I asked him if he wanted to be my partner. So I formed a new LLC that was his. He picked the name. He owns half, I own half. And I capitalized it and said, I'm going to continue to mentorship and do the guidance with you. And then you go grow this business. So you oh, had given him half the company? Uh, half of his new company. Half of his new company, yep. And then from there, he started to grow. He hired a person to help him generate leads. So he nurtured his own business line. About a year later, I met another guy. And I thought, this partner model is going to be for me. So I have five, what I would call operating partners, or maybe a junior partner, I guess. And they're running their own operation. One of them's got six employees. One of them's got 12. They're building their own company. Mm. And I make sure to keep capital ahead of them. I make sure we have an office to operate in. I make sure we have secretaries, attorneys. You know, just the bills are paid. I'm running that part of it. And then, of course, at the end of the day, the strategy falls on me. And these guys are executing, they're bright, they figure out most of their problems, but if they get in a jam up that they can't fix, I gotta figure it out. That's my role there. As far as the, the capital investment, is that all of your, your private money? The way that the capital worked is I was very regimented. And when I started with each new partner, I would want part of that year was to watch how they manage their own money, how they treat their wife, how mm -hmm. they live their life. Because I don't want a partner that the moment we start making money, they're blowing it all because your company will never have stability and you'll be working your fingers to the bone looking for your next dollar. So we kind of built a model in the early days. We would only distribute a hundred grand a year to me and a hundred grand a year to the partner. Mm -hmm. So we're living off a hundred grand a year. Now you'll do the math and I'm getting that distribution from four partners or five partners instead of one. Mm -hmm. My share is a little bit bigger, but the goal is to never distribute more than 200,000 a year of that company for salaries for the two owners. Outside of that, the money continues to reinvest and reinvest. So we got to the point where guys are making million, $2 million and we're living off of a hundred grand a year, Smart. plowing every dollar back into retained earnings. So to answer your question, I only have one asset that has outside capital. The rest of it's me and partner's money. Every once in a while we'll go and we have credit lines at the bank. Every once in a while we'll get like a mortgage on some of the rental portfolio assets. I just don't want to tie that large amount of capital up yet. Mm -hmm. sure. So we'll take notes, we'll finance about 60 to six, sometimes 70% max um, on the rental portfolio assets. But yeah, it's all in-house capital with the exception of a bank and one development deal that I brought in some friends on. Cool. Smart, man. And you would do a, a business line of credit on the LLC, the new company, not on to, to get cash or you do it on the rental properties you're saying? What's that? The line of credit would be on the LLCs, like the businesses themselves or on the actual rental property? No, the, those aren't surprisingly enough because our balance sheet um, has really looks good these days. Uh, they're unsecured credit lines. Mm -hmm. So we did apply for each person's company with a credit line for their specific company. Mm -hmm. And we did personally guarantee at each partner. But outside of that, they're unsecured. That's great. Smart. Good. Well, yeah. it, what, what's some of the things that you would advise for someone new or getting into trying to find a consistent deal flow? What's a strategy that they should use today? You know, the easy answer, if you're looking for these, if you want to do these kinds of deals mm -hmm. is call everyone, you know, in the business and ask them for the deal that they canceled last month that couldn't close because of problems. Yeah. 
That is the easiest free way to get fed a lead that you know the person wants to sell. You know what the title problems look like because that wholesaler or investor has a title commitment on it that's a month or two old and you know how to get a hold of the person. Yeah. So to me, that's the free, easy, best way to get these leads right now. Now, the next question you should ask after this is, well, how should they deal with fixing these? Mm. Because there's a a learning curve. And in the beginning, I recommend to partner with either call local attorney and pay him to help you. Sometimes they'll do well with these, but you're going to have to sort through attorneys to find one that's good at these. Outside of that, call someone like me. There are other guys that a few guys that do this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Get a partner, man. I JV with guys all the time, walk them through the deal. I quarterback, use my money, but give them a share anywhere from twenty-five to fifty percent, depending on the the nature and the risk. Yeah. So come partner, learn how to do a deal. Do half a dozen with me. Then you don't need me anymore. You know what you're doing. Go. But yeah, guidance from a pro, or maybe yeah. somebody from a title company, right? Somebody who's knows title issues and how to clear them. Man. You're going to have to find a special one. The problem you're running into is you have the law and attorneys and judges, that judicial system, and they understand the judicial system. And you have title companies and they understand the escrow work and some of the curative, but not all of it. And then you have investors like us and we understand the business case. Yeah. So you really have to understand all three of those well to be extremely proficient. I find when you find an attorney, they always say, let's file a lawsuit and let's get clear title that way. I'm like, sometimes that doesn't fix it. Yeah. Sometimes that could take years and sometimes that can be horribly expensive. Whereas sometimes I'll do something like I've done one that's like an abandonment of a marriage affidavit with all the original parties to the marriage, except the one guy who deserted right off the bat that extinguished this man's life estate, which meant we had to get one less signature because the dude did vanish. Mm-hmm. There's just an affidavit. But all the attorneys I talked to were saying, let's go do a, a pleading based in the, the family code about abandonment of marriage and he's gone and we're going to get a ruling from a judge. I'm like, what? Let's do an affidavit instead. Yeah. Wow. So that's the difference where some of those will struggle. But when you find an operator who's experienced with it, they'll say, A, I feel comfortable because I've done this a lot. And B, I have other remedies, not just judicial system. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I was, it's not the same sort of, issues but uh obviously you're dealing with more title and legal Tax, yeah. and, and such but i had a listing kiro and i were both um realtors and we still are uh, i had a listing in east orange i think it was that had uh three oil tanks and i we thought there was one we asked the seller to remove the tank mm-hmm. and he uh-huh. um was reluctant and i explained to him that you know no buyer really is going to buy this without the tank <laughs> removed yeah. yeah and then we did uh somehow we found out there was two other ones two other tanks and he said he wouldn't remove them. So I was like, you know what? Forget it. Take the, take the listing back. And I just gave it back. And I think two years later, Greg, oh, Taylor, Greg, yeah. Greg Taylor, who's a, another realtor in our market, now he's a full-time investor. He came to me. He's like, hey, you know, I bought that property once you withdrew it from the MLS. I was like, what? <laughs> and, and he's like, yeah. He's like, the three oil tanks, two oil tanks, whatever the hell it was. He's like, I got them all removed. I bought it for $250,000. I'm under contract right now selling it for seven fifty dollars or some shit. Some craziness. Just to close the loop, I had my blinders on. I'm like, this, all I do is list property. And this is not a listing because the seller's not motivated and won't take my advice. Throw it out. Yeah. That's it. But instead, I was like, I should have, you know, rolled up my sleeves and taken that one on. You know, I think realtors who understand this kind of stuff have a unique advantage. 
Here's an example. My wife does a lot of pre-foreclosure listings. The mm -hmm. rest of the realtors around here, they get a call six days before a foreclosure auction. Dude, they're done. They don't they, want to touch nothing it. nothing they can do. What we'll do is my wife will have an attorney on behalf of the property owner file a temporary restraining order against the lender to stop the foreclosure sale. Then she'll snap the pictures and get it out there on the listing service. And because she's doing extra work, she has an agreement with them that says, I'm making you a loan for your legal fees. When this property sells, first, I get my loan for my legal fees back. Second, I get my commission. Then you get your money. And instead of doing a 6% listing, 3% to the buyer, 3% to the seller. In Texas, we don't have promulgated or assigned prices. It's just up to negotiation. Standard is six here, but she charges 15%. 3% to the buyer agent, 12% to her. So on a $300,000 house, she make 30, 40 grand yeah. because she's going in and acting as an investor and stopping the foreclosure, protecting the equity and getting it to market. The other Smart. thing is it's a, it's a wise play at the point, but also when these sellers start getting calls from investors, my wife's offer is always going to be better than the investors because she's taking it to market and she's usually going to get more in their pocket, even though she has a big fee, mm -hmm. you're going to market. Yeah. So, uh, That's smart. That That's is a good tip. Really smart. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Holy crap. All right. So what other advices would you give to someone else to start new? Because like one of the things, lead sources is probably one of the, the biggest things that we struggle with. We were literally talking about this earlier today. Uh, we were like going through it. Okay. So we have, we can target absentees. We can target, you know, people maybe who had evictions recently who are just fed up with ownership. Um, is there other lead sources that you would recommend going towards other than just the pre-foreclosure and liens? You know, a couple years in, I was looking at every different way to look up leads. And I started to find that I think people complicate stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got absentee owner, you got delinquent uh, tax, you got high equity. I mean, it's there's not that many different unique types of people that own houses. Like you're getting a hold of owners that have a high probability of a, of a required necessity to sell. Yeah. I don't know that you need more than that. You know, we're, we're specifically looking at delinquent tax list, docket search, and the sale notices. And, and through that, we'll find all in Texas. Once you get to the point where there's a tax sale, probably half of those have title issues and it's the first indicator. Mm -hmm. You can search through your land records for multiple owners and stuff like that, but I would rather also have a delinquent tax problem. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's taking time bomb. Yeah. It creates right. an emergency. Right. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people will say, hey, we wanted to check like two out of the three boxes. Yeah. You know, there's some people that I know that say they list stack. They want to increase their exactly. odds. Yeah. I mean, you can do that, but you start to narrow down, um, narrow down your targets by it has to have a code compliance lien also. Yeah. Man, I bought a three point two million dollar warehouse for one point seven million dollars last year mm. and just flipped it on MLS, made a million and a half dollars. It didn't have any code compliance liens. It did have delinquent taxes, mm. but that would have been excluded from this list. I think there's so many incredible deals that get excluded when you list stack so high. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, you stack a list, you're going to have the highest level of distress, but I don't know that I need that. I need yeah, some yeah. shit to be going wrong. I don't need everything to be wrong with it. Right. Just fair. something. Right. That's right. a good point. That's very good point. How do you navigate the conversation when you're negotiating the price with the seller? especially if it's like 20 to 40%. Because a, a lot of times what happens is these sellers, even though they're delinquent on their taxes, even though they've got title issues, they still think, oh, well, you know, uh, according to this estimate, it's worth this. Or my right. neighbor's warehouse sold for $2 million last year. So I know I got some hair on the deal, but that's what my that, property's worth too. 
that's one of my favorites. And I say, you know, you're right. I would never try to steer you away from that. So you're right. It is worth $3 million. I won't be able to pay that. You should probably sell it to somebody else. But I think one of the problems you're going to run into is you've got a delinquent tenant in there that won't leave and you're going to have to sue to get the tenant out. You have a tax lien that you got to get released. And he told himself that he didn't want people in the community to know because he had failed as a business person and he didn't want to be looked down on among the community. So if it hit the listing service, everyone was going to know. Mm-hmm. And he flat out said this thing, he thought it was worth $2 million. He didn't realize it was three, but he said, look, it's worth $2 million bucks and you're only going to give me $1.7 million. I said, you know, then maybe you should just take it to market and fix those problems. I'll tell you exactly how to fix them all. And if you want, I'll walk you through it. And again, I say, I'm not a deal maker. I'm just a deal finder. So if it doesn't work for me, that's okay. You know, there are literally 30 new leads like this hit my desk every single day. And some of those will materialize in a deal. So I understand if you're not the right deal for me. But another, when it's not, when I don't get hit with that exact question, what I explain to people is, look, I know this estimate says 250000 bucks or whatever. The appraiser didn't come out and look at your house. If you right. look at the other houses in the neighborhood that are in great condition, they're 250. If you protested your taxes and brought the appraiser out, your value would come down substantially. But what's more important than that is if you're trading in a fresh, brand new Cadillac that's in good condition, you're gonna get top dollar. But the Cadillac you're bringing me has a busted tire, it's missing a rim, the windshield's broken out, and it needs to be repainted. You're bringing me something that needs work. And I can't pay you for something that's already fixed. So the way it works for me is I'm going to buy your seat at the table. You have all these problems, fighting siblings, judgments and liens against your property because your cousin didn't pay his child support. I'm just buying a seat at this table. Hmm. And you already told me that you spent five years trying to fix this and can't. Do you think I'm going to fix it quickly? Well, you're an expert on this. There you go. I am. And I might be able to. But if I don't, I'm in the spot you are. If I had a property like this, would you give me any money for it? You probably wouldn't even want to buy it because you haven't been able to fix it. So and you need to be able to detach the value of the property for the money I'm giving you. Those can't, those are not correlated. The money I'm giving you is just money to be to compensate you for your time mm-hmm. dealing with me and for me to take on your headache. Yeah. But for that, I can't pay huge money. Well said. Yeah. I love that. A Cadillac example is good too. Yeah. I had a listing appointment once. It was that property in, um, I think it was like Bloomfield. It was a three-family or two-family with the tenants that were squatting. Juan was the seller's I name. I sold that one for you, right? Yeah. And then <laughs> I sold that one for you, right? <laughs> well, no, he, he, he listed it and I negotiated I, I went on the appointment. He handled like the negotiations internally. But the, the seller, we were in Dunkin' Donuts talking about it. And the guy was just like, yeah, I want to think about this. I'm like, hey, listen, I'm not excited to take over your problem. If you want me to take over the problem, I'll handle it, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna beg you for the yeah. listing or do this or chase you after it. So you're total, signing here or you're not. It's a power shift. <laughs> yeah, and he and, just and, signed and, right and you're saying, hey, listen, like, you know, in other words, I'm doing you a favor here. Yeah, right. But if you're not prospecting and not talking to enough leads every day or having people in your office do it, yeah. what happens? Then you settle for whatever comes across your desk, sure. and then you don't have the the, the power. That's but, right. You know, I, there's another concept that I started to understand after several years. I don't want to be the first pig to the trough. I want them to have already been in contract with a realtor, already in contract with an investor wholesaler type buyer. I want them to have tried to fix these problems already. So when I show up, I'm not having to convince them of what these problems look like because they sound crazy. Yeah. I did a deal two years ago that had 65 owners. The last transaction date was like 1909. What the hell? Like the last wow. deed in the land records was 1909. It was a great grandpa of the people I was dealing with. Mm. 
when it, you when you try to explain this to someone, they think you're lying. They think you're crazy. So it's so you're saying it's it's good for you to come in and be like sort of the second or third investor that they've talked to. I love it, man. I love being it because I don't have to convince them of the problems. This is such a great power dynamic shift. When I say, tell me about what you're going through. They're telling me how fucked up it is. They're telling me how much problems it is. They're telling me all the things they've done to fix it. Yeah. And I'm just sitting here like, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> yeah. What's the saying? It's, it's great to be somebody's first love, second husband, and third realtor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> That's what we used to say as realtors, right? Yeah. First love. Second husband, third realtor, because they've been through all the the brain damage and all the problems. <laughs> That's funny. Wow. Yeah. You can tell your wife that one. You said she's a realtor, right? Yeah. Yeah. Good Being the third realtor wow. is amazing. They're like, all right, this is what happened last time. Yeah. They, they didn't do up. this. They didn't do that. They didn't do open houses. They didn't do nice photos. They didn't do this. And you just come in and you say, all right, well, this is what we're going to do different. That's you know, I've, I've had think about this for a minute. You know, we'll call somebody in California whose uncle owned a house. And when their uncle died, he had no children. So his heir was his brother. His brother's daughter is the niece who lives somewhere else who's never been to San Antonio. Hmm. She gets a call out of the blue. I specifically remember this property on Belmont Street. It really struck me. We call her and tell her what's going on, that she's an heir to the property and that we want to buy it from her. She thinks we're like a scammer, like from overseas trying to like get her personal information. Think about if somebody called you, John, they're like, hey, by the way, you've inherited this property. All you have to do is sign these papers. And I'm gonna give you 10 grand. You're like, <laughs> okay, what? yeah, right. So it really, it really is a strange thing. Or the, the point is when you get to that situation, they already understand what's going on. They've been through the trouble. There's no trust issues here there's no having to prove up much they got it all yeah that's yeah. Solid. you had the same issue with the probate too right what's that with the lady not knowing that she inherited a property yeah i've had situations like that where that person was actually thankful that i brought it to her attention where for some reason she didn't get all the executor paperwork paperwork or executrix tricks paperwork and um I always give people that example because some people start screaming and yelling when you call them saying, yeah. you know, I understand you're the executor for the estate. Other people say, well, oh my gosh, thank you so much for letting me know. I had no idea. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Any other skills that someone should have um, when they're going out to, to have that investor hat on looking for deals? You know, I think being really open-minded and being honest and transparent is really helpful. You know, people hate investors and you know why they hate them? Because they're cheap, they're assholes, they're hard to deal with. They're looking to underpay everybody. The seller, the tradesman, the surveyor, they fight about their escrow fees. Like nobody likes that. And they're usually like, you know, kind of, a lot of them are, yeah, that, that. They're also, they, a lot of folks are acting shifty all the time. I try to be really honest. I try to be open and transparent. When people say, you're going to make a lot of money, I say, if this goes my way, you're right. I'm going to, and I don't ever go into the properties. Well, when I was in the field, I wouldn't walk in and start picking it apart and talking all right. this shit about it because this property means something to them. And here I am talking shit about something that matters to them. That's, right. that's not, that's not what Dale Carnegie says you do when you try to win friends and influence people. It's not mm, that. Yeah. I'm going to so, make, I'm going to make a lot of money, but I'm also going to spend a lot of money to, to clean a lot of shit up here. That was a lot of education, a lot of transparency. And there's a part of the human element 
when you walk in and acting kind of like a shifty guy, people sense that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you come in and you're just a good, honest, open person, you communicate well, and you show that, hey, you're another person, you treat them like a human, you're caring and respectful, people feel that. Otherwise, they just don't like you, and they're not yeah. going to want to work with you. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, listen, this has been this has been really, really beneficial. I think we we both learned a lot here. I think yeah. our viewers will will certainly learn a lot. We really do appreciate you spending uh, spending some time with us. I know you don't usually do Fridays, so thank you for, for yeah, making man, the you. exception. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I will tell people if they're out there trying to figure this stuff out. I mean, obviously, I'll say call me because I do JVs with people. But you know, I'll sell you, tell you the same way that I tell sellers. I'm not here trying to load up all the money on my plate. There's enough to go around. If you're in real estate and you're making a little bit of money, don't take that $5,000 you got and make the down payment on the next car. Take that five grand and invest it on the project by hiring a local really good lawyer and try to help you fix some of these issues and try to trade your seller down. If you can figure out how to get through just one deal and test it, five grand ain't big, test it and see if you can make headway on that. If you can, you might only do three or four of these deals a year in your standard operation, mm-hmm. but those three or four deals can change your income level, can literally double it sometimes. Yeah. I encourage folks to just work your way through some of this stuff a little bit, put a little bit of money behind it and take a little bit of risk. I've made millions and millions and millions, actually multiple millions in single years. You know, this company nets anywhere from five to $8 million annually net nice. on between 30 to 40 million in sales. It can be that good. Yeah. And I'll tell you, you, we got some good ideas over here, but we ain't brighter than half the people out there. We're just brighter than one half, not the other half. (laughs) Sweet, man. And if someone wants to get in touch or connect with you, what's the best way to do so? Instagram is a great way. If you'll look me up, Logan Fulmer, two L's in Fulmer on Instagram. I'm easy to get a hold of. Great to connect with. That's how we connected. Yep. Yep. If you've got something you think you want me to take a look, take a look at, if you email me info, I-N-F-O, at A-R-P-U-S-A dot com, send over a messy file, we'll take a look. If it's a simple solve, we'll tell you what to do and you can go. If it's one we want to participate in, we'll tell you what that looks like too. Cool. Sweet, man. Awesome, man. Well, have a great weekend. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. You got it. Appreciate it. We'll see y'all.